Sasswa is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit sasswa.com. This is Saswa, a podcast about Bigfoot. I'm your host. My name is Seth Breedlove, and I'm joined tonight by my pal, Mark Matsky. Greetings. And my other pal, Brandon Dalo. Hey. And Brandon has been with us now three episodes in a row. I keep introducing him because we're recording all these episodes in one shot, and I just forget <laughs> what I did 20 minutes ago. Uh, Brandon, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Uh, hopefully we didn't lose 78% of our listening audience with the high strangeness episode of Sass What, which actually had a lot of fun recording and we may have to revisit again because here on Sass What, we like to attack subjects that we can never fully dissect in the 30 minutes that we try to, uh, actually put an episode into. So, uh, Mark, how are you doing? Doing good. Currently it's very cold in Muskingum County. Mm. We're not used to this down here. I, I always forget you're in Muskingum. So yes. What what what's the weather like, temperature wise? Well, um, overnight it was it was uh, below zero in regular temperature, mm. and uh, now it's warming up. I think it's maybe twelve. So we're trending in the right direction. Tropical, downright tropical. Yeah. So what do you what do you think? I mean, before we go into the subject of this particular episode, which is Bigfoot classic sightings, uh, what do you think Bigfoots do if they exist? Where do you think they go when it's minus six and like minus thirty with the wind chill here, like it was yesterday? Well, I think um, they huddle. Option a they huddle is together. <laughs> local cave, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's got to be. If they have access to some subterranean or old mine or something like that, okay. it's got to be first place they go. Okay. So what, that or the UFO. I mean, it's got to be climate <laughs> control. One or the other. I was going to say go to another dimension. <laughs> They're in the tropical dimension at this time of year. Right. The Dominican Republic dimension. Uh, I, think yeah, they, I, I find this that subject, though, the Bigfoots in winter, I find that really interesting. Yeah, I, I think the... Um, the whole migrating theory um, probably comes into play. If they do exist, you would think they would move south. They don't even have to move. This is the part of that that I think is interesting. Is I don't think they have to move far. Um, right. I think they could move. I mean, if you're talking about, let's say they're in a, in a mountain range, they could move to another side of the mountain range down. You know where the wind isn't coming in, or or maybe they just move a hundred miles south. You know, I mean, if you if you left here and went. Well, actually, right now, I think pretty much, uh, I think I read today, like 74% of the United States is in the 30s or below right now. Um, but you could you could move relatively close by and still get some level of, you know, warmer climate. Like when you're, when you're this cold, I just find it hard to believe that there would be, you know, an animal just out there chilling in the woods, mm-hmm. you know, throwing rocks. Hey Seth, do you remember that article you read by John Green about the white Bigfoot? Yeah. Wasn't there something in that about um, white Bigfoot reports in wintertime? Yeah. Yeah, there was. Yeah, like the... There's a correlation there 
a high percentage rate, if if I remember right. I don't have that data in front of me. It was in his mm-hmm. book that I had. Um, okay. But I I don't remember off the top of my head what it was. Yeah. But you're right. There is a there's a correlation there. So and and I think some of that has to do with snow, white you know white mm-hmm. white snow on fur. I mean, could stick around, especially oh, when yeah. it's cold. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so let's move on to the subject of the show, which is uh, Bigfoot Classics. Last time we talked a lot about uh, Ape Canyon and Albert Ostman. I think we got into uh, Patterson Gimlin, which we call the kind of the ultimate classic Bigfoot sighting. Uh, we talked a little bit about William Rowe. Uh, we're going to get into it a little bit more here tonight. Um, but before we do that, we... We just recorded an episode before this about uh, historical sightings, and you talked about Elkana, Elkana, how do you say his name? Elkana. Elkana Walker. Can you go over that again? I saw you closed your your, your laptop. Yeah, my laptop died. Yeah. Here. <laughs> in between. I'm, I think I got it right here. So here, I want you to retell this one, because this fits in really well with this story. No, that was, yeah, that was from um, 1840, I believe. Mm-hmm. Elkana Walker, um, he wrote... He had a diary about his time, his time spending as a missionary in the Washington state to the Spokane Native Americans. More and more sightings of Bigfoot were recorded by white men. In 1840, E. Walker, a missionary to the Spokane Indians in Washington, wrote a fascinating letter. Walker describes a race of giants that live in the mountains. They hunt and do all their work at night. They frequently come in the night and steal their salmon from their nets and eat them raw. But the people are awake. They always know when they are coming very near by their strong smell, which is most intolerable. Um, and he, he wanted to tell everyone about some of their superstitions, as they called them. But uh, they believed in a race of giants, um, and they had a lot of similar um, characteristics that you know we, we kind of hear in classic Bigfoot um, sightings. Um, you know that they um, lived on the mountain. They were covered in hair. They hunt and do all the work at night. Um, they threw stones at houses. They stole salmon from from the Native Americans' nets. Um, their footprint, when the, when it was seen, was quote a foot and a half long, mm-hmm. uh, and they had a very strong smell. Hey, Mark, this reminds me, uh, not to cut you off, Brandon, but. No. Um, you know, you and I just did the the Bigfoot traits episode, and we talked about mm-hmm. rock throwing being a fairly uh, new to us, anyway, a fairly new thing, other than like Ape Canyon. And this is eighteen forty, eighteen forty, eighteen forty, and there's rock throwing on two yeah. houses, and that's a very interesting. <laughs> yeah. It is, and they also he also talks about um, them whistling as well. They yeah. knew that he says that the people mm-hmm. would know that they were coming when they would whistle three times. And the stones would begin to hit their houses as if, you know, some kind of an attack, which is interesting because we talk about, you know, we talked about whistles in the sounds episode, you know, with yeah. with the samurai chatter stuff. And um, so it's just and that California report we talked about, too. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So whistling in that, too. Well, Pennsylvania, uh, we, we spoke earlier about Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is kind of renowned for their history of uh, whistling folklore, like folklore surrounding whistling. Um I have one of those Monsters of books, and it's Monsters of Pennsylvania, and they talk a lot about, I mean, almost every piece of folklore coming out of there in, involves some sort of creature whistling, or, I mean, I remember there's, like, little people that live in the woods that whistle, and, and small boys that whistle, and kidnapping, I mean, it's it 
runs across all these stories this whistling thing and and which which might add some credence to the uh sierra sounds right because mm-hmm. those whistles and that that creeps me out every time i hear it. <laughs> yeah yeah mm-hmm. um all right let's uh let's m- let mark take us to uh one of the classics that you want to talk about yeah well the very famous story of Jacko uh, comes from the year 1884, Yale, British Columbia. A strange creature was spotted from a train, and uh, the newspaper, The Daily Colonist, asked the question, what is it, a strange creature captured above Yale, a British Columbia gorilla? In 1884, near the town of Yale, British Columbia, a strange creature was captured that some called a young Bigfoot. Nicknamed the Jacko by his captors, it was said to be something of a gorilla type, standing about four feet seven inches in height and weighing 127 pounds. Mysteriously, Jacko disappeared from a transport train and was never seen again. And as the train approached, they saw what they thought was a man lying asleep. Uh, the brakes were pressed brought the train to a complete stop, and uh, fortunately the train was ahead of schedule, so they had a little time to do this. Uh, the man on the track sprang to life. His body was completely covered with glossy black hair, about an inch long. Uh, here we go. When the hairy man heard the whistle and the brakes from the train, he let out a bark. He started climbing up a steep and rocky hill beside the tracks. Uh, some guys got off of the train and chased him. Uh, they managed to get above him on the hill and dropped a rock on the wild man's head, which knocked him out. And they tied him up and put him on the train. Uh, when they got him to town, he was nicknamed Jacko. Uh, he had a, a keeper named George Tilbury who wanted to take him to London, England, to exhibit him. And the details are even given about his diet. He liked berries and fresh milk, uh, was not fed raw meat, as they thought it would turn him savage, quote-unquote. Um <laughs> Before the capture of Jacko, people who lived in the area had reported seeing something uh, like him. Now, the, the the thing that sort of balances this out and raises some question is that as quickly as Jacko made the headlines, he quickly disappeared. And uh, another newspaper, The Guardian, in 1884, July 9, wrote, The fact of the matter is no such animal was caught. Um, but a uh, long time researcher and you know a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are familiar with the name john green uh noted that a man who lived in yale where jacko was allegedly held captive remembered hearing the story when he was a boy his name was august castle he never saw the creature but he remembers the tales told about it and uh, so i think green on that point was just saying this was in the living history and memory of an individual. Uh, it doesn't mean it actually happened or it was true, but he seemed to have heard about that independent of the uh, newspaper account. That is Jacko's story. Jacko is one of the the stories that got me into the subject, too. Um, what, what year was that again? That was 1884. Wow. So those late 1800s stories, they're fascinating. I mean, that one, mm-hmm. that one's awesome. It, it, it Shades of it remind me a little bit of the Minnesota Iceman, which I think we talked about in the historical, the uh, not historical, but the classics episode. I think we talked a little bit about it. Yeah, just in passing. Yeah, not not a whole lot, but we did. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to have Brandon tell us about Bauman, which we have not gone over yet, but we need to. This is a favorite of many. Yeah, this is a good one. Uh, this was told um, by Teddy Roosevelt, actually, in his 1890 book, The Wilderness Hunter. Um, he relates a story of a trapper named Bauman. And um, basically, Bauman and his um, colleague, two trappers, they sat out on a beaver hunt um, in the Bitterroot Mountains between the state of Idaho and Montana. And basically what happened is they set up a bunch of traps for the beavers, and then they kind of set up their, their campsite, build a fire, build a shelter, and um, they would come back to their campsite and find that the shelter had been, had been demolished. Um, and they had seen. Was the fi- I'm sorry. No. But was the fire running uh, like going at that point? Did they have the fire lit? Did it say? Um, I didn't see that. I need to find because I've read. I feel like I've read a few reports recently, uh, historical reports and modern reports, where a Bigfoot might have put a fire out. Right, Mark mentioned one, right? I think in the I last think episode. you did in the last episode. Yeah, yeah. I picked up the sticks individually and whirled them around until they went out right and when you were talking about that i actually thought of the bauman story because i feel like i did read somewhere that they it, that it was as though someone had kicked dirt onto the fire or something like that but maybe in this particular recounting of it it doesn't say mm-hmm. i might be i could just be completely mistaken which is 99 percent of the time <laughs> no and they not only did they see their camp kind of you know ravaged and uh, their shelter destroyed um they saw a lot of footprints um all throughout the camp campground um that the first night they uh, you know they kind of rebuilt the shelter you know didn't think too much of it and went to sleep um, the uh, later that evening um, in the shelter he Bauman woke up and saw just a large body is what he described it as just a large large body in the darkness there at the mouth of the lean to if you can imagine how scary that would be um, took his rifle shot at it doesn't know if he hit it um, the thing ran off um, as far as I can recollect, the rest of the story goes that the um, the following ni- or the same night or the following night they um, they heard these wild screams in the woods next to their campsite um, and found a lot more tracks throughout the throughout their camp and so they they finally decided to leave um, and so they spent the whole afternoon collecting all of their traps and Bauman and, and his partner separated and um, Bauman actually caught a couple of beavers so he was busy doing that when he came back. He got to the clearing uh, where their camp was and called out his partner's name and got no response. And so he ran up to the camp, found his partner lying there. The body was still warm, uh, but he was he was dead. His neck was broken, and he had teeth marks um, on his neck. So um, he immediately grabbed his rifle, left everything behind, and and ran as fast as he could out of the out of there. So kind of an insane story it is an insane story especially the biting thing mm-hmm. um it's not reported often i don't know of any other bigfoot biting someone reports mark off the top of your head anything bigfoot biting someone no nothing i got one you know what it is minerva minerva <laughs> <laughs> oh uh it's the only it's the only thing off the top of my head i've got is is the minerva monster um it's the only biting story um, let's do the, uh, let's, let's talk about William Rowe real quick, which I know we got a little bit into the last time, but, uh, I wanted to go back to it and revisit it. 
Um, I'm actually pulling this story up on BigfootEncounters.com, which if you haven't been, I really think it's a it's a wonderful site. Um, Bobby Short ran it, and uh, she passed away last year, I believe. Uh, but it's a really good, uh, you know, one-stop shop for Bigfoot sighting reports and articles, and she did a great job of kind of putting all this stuff in place. But William Rowe... Uh, in October, this is 1955, apparently. For some reason, I had been placing it further back, but he was in uh, Canada somewhere. I don't even know how to say this. Tete Jean Cash? Does that sound right? Uh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> he he was out hunting. Uh, for He had just actually killed a grizzly and, and saw a, a female Bigfoot. Um, and again, we get into this, you know, female... Uh, description very clearly a female if you know what I mean I mean he talks about it having breasts and um, he gave the crazy thing about this I was I was just reading this last night and I think I'm gonna go ahead and read the bottom half of this um, because this is actually taken from a um, let me see this was what do they call these this is a uh, this was sworn in front of the province of Alberta on August uh, 1957, an affidavit. So this was an actual court document. Um, So I want to read this a little bit because it will kind of clue you into the fact that this isn't just some guy telling a pal, you know, a story about seeing Bigfoot. Uh, He's he's describing the female, and he goes, and yet its torso was not curved like a female's. Its broad frame was straight from shoulder to hip. Its arms were much thicker than a man's arms and longer, reaching almost to its knees. That is a really common description by the way Mm -hmm. its feet were broader proportionately than a man's about five inches wide at the front and tapering to much thinner heels when it walked it placed the heel of its foot down first and i could see the gray brown skin or side or hide on the soles of its feet it came to the edge of the bush i was hiding in within 20 feet of me and squatted down on its haunches reaching out its hands it pulled the branches of bushes toward it and stripped the leaves with its teeth uh, its lips curled flexibly around the te- uh, around the leaves as it ate. I was close enough to see that its teeth were white and even. The shape of this creature's head, somewhat, <laughs> the, I'm just going to skip that. The head was higher at the back <laughs> than at the front. The nose was broad and flat. The lips and chin protruded further than its nose, but the hair that covered it, leaving bare only the parts of its face around the mouth, mouth, nose, and ears, made it resemble an animal as much as a human. None of this hair, even on the back of its head, was longer than an inch, and that on its face was much shorter. Its ears were shaped like a human's ears, but its eyes were small and black like a bear's, and its neck also was unhuman, thicker and shorter than any man's I'd ever seen. Uh, basically, eventually, this thing noticed he was there and, and kind of took off. Um, he he almost shot at it, did not. Um, he tried to track it down and thought he had come across a place where it had slept the night before. <coughs> the... The thing I find so interesting about uh, Rose Encounter is how detailed he gets. This this goes on. What I read there was a tiny piece. I mean, he describes length of hair on the body. He describes color of the eyes. He describes the ears, the nose holes. I mean, it's like the nostrils, not nose holes, but <laughs> uh, the nostrils. And and then you get into things like the breasts and, and all that stuff. It's an insanely detailed report. Uh, and the thing about it that is so impressive to me is that it lines up with a lot of other reports, especially when you're talking about when he's talking about the bulk of the feet and the way they taper to the back and, and they're slightly bigger and, and 
the way he describes the ears, those things are still uh, recounted today in sighting reports. Right, and he, he had you said he had killed a grizzly, right? Yeah. Earlier. Yeah. So you know, here he is, he has hunted a grizzly, and he and he's telling a complete. He can tell a complete difference between the two, the two things. Yeah, you he said I mean? he says at the beginning of this that he had, uh, ever since he was a small boy back in the forest of Michigan, he had studied the lives and habits of wild animals. So this isn't some guy who's some Yahoo bumbling <laughs> around the the woods, you know. Right, and there's behaviors described here too, mm-hmm. um, like the half laugh, half language, mm-hmm. whinny sound. I mean that that's amazing to me coming out of uh, the 1950s that that's described there as a a feature also of uh, what he saw yeah i mean as a as a new person as someone coming to the subject for the first time if you're if you've never heard this stuff before this is what got me invested in it it's these historical reports because this is these these are encounters that took place before, like Brandon said earlier. These are encounters that took place before Monster Quest, before Finding Bigfoot, uh, and these are behavior patterns and physical features that you see for for centuries recounted. Um, let's talk about Ruby Creek, Mark. Do you want to talk about it? Do you have it in front of you? Which had been reported in small local newspapers. Mr. John Green, publisher of a newspaper at Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia began investigating some of these sightings. Here is John Green to report on a sighting he investigated in 1957. When I first came here in about 1957, it was still pretty well open. But all this has has grown up since then. Now, uh, what happened at that time was that uh, Mrs. George Chapman, who lived in a house down by the river behind me here, she was in the house, and the children were outside. One of them came in and told her that there was a cow coming out of the woods. So she looked out, and she saw this man-like thing, but uh, about eight feet tall and completely covered with hair like a bear. And uh, she knew it to be a Sasquatch. Uh, this was you know, quite a well-known thing to the Indian people. And she was frightened, so she took the children ran down to the river and then through the graveyard, which is right behind me here, and uh, came out just about here onto the track and then uh, ran on down to Ruby Creek. Now, uh, she'd really only had one quick look at the thing, so uh, it wouldn't be that convincing a story, except that a lot of people immediately went back there and saw these enormous tracks. Uh, Mr. Tifting, of course, was one of them, and... uh, can describe uh, no. Okay. I don't. I will. I will go back into it. Um, this is a story about uh, a family, the Chapman family. Um, the family consisted of George and Jeannie Chapman and children, numbering at my visit four children. Uh, I don't know who wrote this that I'm reading. By the way, it doesn't say. There's no one listed here. Uh, basically, the the Ruby Creek incident is really interesting in that the the husband went off to I believe work. They kind of lived out in the middle of. Uh, out out in the middle of the woods, um, Mr. T- Chapman went to work, um, and Mrs. Chapman was was there with her children. Um, I asked her a leading blah blah blah. This is hard to recount because whoever wrote this, it's almost like a an interview. So in front of me, I don't have this, so it's it's difficult to recount the details of the story. But um, the the 
basically there was a Sasquatch that her and the children saw. There was. Do you remember what the incidents were surrounding this? Mark, did it attack them? I'm, I know she was outside hanging laundry. That's like the big, the big part of it right. that always sticks out to me. I don't think it attacked them. I just think it approached. Okay, and that was enough to terrify everybody and send them running okay yeah they, they ran into town didn't they they, they did they found she the... recounted it being seven and a half feet tall um she said she could estimate its height by the various fence and line posts standing about the field it had a rather small head and a very short thick neck in fact no neck at all really um a, a point that was also emphasized by william Rowe. um george came home to find that they were gone uh let me see. There's so many details here. When he reached his house, he immediately saw the woodshed door battered in and spotted enormous humanoid fr- footprints all over the place. Greatly alarmed, for he, like all the people, had heard since childhood about the big wild men of the woods. Thought he did not hear the sound of the Sasquatch till after the incident. He called for his family and then dashed through the house. Uh, he spotted the foot, foot tracks of his wife and kids going off toward the river. He followed these until he picked them up. Um, so that's the, the interesting thing there is the attack on the house after they're gone. Right. And, and I believe, uh, hearkening back to Monster Quest, I believe on that episode of the Monster Quest where um, Dr. Meldrum and the other folks were out on that island and they had the rock throwing, I think that was the episode where they recounted this story. Because something about that battering in of the door, rem- uh, there's similarities there between what happened to that cabin that the uh, doctor and, and those other men were staying in and the, this particular encounter might be completely remembering that wrong though <laughs> it's the uh, it's the uh, genesis of exists right there yeah it's uh, exists it's, before exists it is and it's encounters like this that I think inform the kind of monster report right because it's this woman and her children innocent they see this giant monster they flee it destroys their house I mean Bigfoots really must not be fans of uh, people's homes. I mean, with all the like rock throwing and battering indoors, <laughs> it's an ongoing <laughs> issue. Yeah, or he hates laundry. Maybe right. it, it enrages him somehow. Now, this took place in the 1860s, I believe. Um, Sasquatch. Yeah, I believe so. I can't get an exact date because, again, this this uh, report that I'm reading this from is incredibly vague. Uh, but it's an older, it's definitely an older account. Um, do you have any last ones you want to get in here, Mark? Because we're about out of time. Yeah, I do. I have a, a report that should be a classic. I just don't think it's well known enough at this point. But it comes mm-hmm. out of uh, the 1940s, 1941, um, in Basket Lake, Manitoba. And this uh, involves a man named Paul Shabaga. Shibaga, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but he was about 17 years old at this time. And this story was uh, really uncovered by a Bigfoot researcher named Kurt Nelson. He visited Paul on a couple occasions and spoke with him by phone. And this was a hunting trip. Uh, Paul was on a hunting trip. He was looking for elk and moose, and he went to the uh, west side of Basket Lake, he spotted a moose, and he fired a shot, and he hit the moose and followed the blood trail for about a half hour and saw the moose again and took another shot at it. He was about 45, 50 yards away. And so um, he, he approached uh, very 
slowly, very carefully, and what he saw on the ground was not a moose at all. And the exact quote that he gave in his report was, holy buckets. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's lying there, and one foot was up. So I nudged him in the foot, slowly walked on this side, still hanging on to my rifle. I picked up with my right foot, uh, picked his hand up with my right foot to see the bottom. I walked around. I could see where I hit him in the back, high in the back between the shoulder blades. It must have been bent over because to look at the moose track and the blood or something like that. And uh, evidently what happened is his bullet hit uh, this creature between the shoulder blades and killed it instantly. And he was really startled by what he saw. He had never heard the term Sasquatch before, and he didn't know what he killed. Uh, it was somewhat gorilla-like, somewhat man-like, a big one, eight feet tall. He said he spent about 10 minutes looking at the animal and then got out of the area as fast as he could. The big round chest, really big. Uh, he estimated that the foot was 15 inches long and man-like. Uh, hands were like a man's hand. Hair on its head was longer than the rest of the body. Had a dark brown reddish overtone to the hair. Hmm. And he just kept quiet about the story for decades because he thought people would think that he was crazy, not to mention um, you know, what the legal ramifications might be. Uh, but, you know, he said uh, this was during the war years, World War II. The thing was, people can be very funny if you talk about something that's out of line. Right away, you're crazy. You're not all there, you know. I did a lot of thinking myself. I could not place an animal in my brain like that. Was it half human, half ape, or something like that? And he was hunting without a license. Uh, <laughs> there it is. Poacher. So he didn't want to uh, get in, in trouble. Bigfoot poacher. So, um, you know, he just was amazed by that and that that's a story that i just i i suppose because of how how relatively recently that's come to light it just isn't that uh, well known mm -hmm. uh, I, I, but it's uh it's quite a claim i mean nobody you know you know when you think about when you think about how many hunters are out in the woods i mean it would make sense for one eventually to run into one of these things and actually have the the, the balls to shoot it I mean, it, to me, it would make sense for that to happen at some point. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't. I've never had a problem with some of these reports of people killing the Bigfoot. I just don't understand why they don't lop off its arm or something and bring it along. Mm -hmm. So yeah. right, where's the details at the end? Did he just did he just leave it there? Or? Yeah, did he leave it? Yeah, he left it. Okay. He got he just left the area completely. Okay. He didn't go back. Interesting. Hmm. This guy this let us all down. <laughs> He's got the fine of a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably millions in his future if he would have just taken the head. Um, all right. So final thoughts on uh, these classic accounts. What what are they contributing? I mean, recounting these things, why do we do it? And does it inform anything in terms of our uh, our knowledge base of, of these creatures? Um, Brandon, over to you. Yeah, I think like any subject, you know, you've got to have your... You're ones that kind of started it all, you know, mm -hmm. um, and these stories do that for this this subject. Um, but again, you know, like we said before, all of these stories took place at a time when it was not all over the place. So the fact that they have such detail in in them, um, I just find to be pretty credible. And um, the fact that we're still seeing these kinds of things today is is very interesting. Yep. Mark. 
What fascinates me is that a lot of these older cases, and William Rowe brought this back to light, you know, there's sworn affidavits involved, you know, and that, that doesn't necessarily prove that the stories are true, but it does prove that people were willing to go on record as having had an encounter like this. Um, and, you know, you're you're risking something, especially back in 1955, you're risking something by going on the record of the court and saying, I had this extremely detailed close-up uh, encounter with what I think is uh, uh, an undiscovered uh, species. So I, I think that's part of it, too, is that these were so strange and, and so unusual that people were willing to really, some people anyway, <laughs> were willing to take responsibility, in a sense, for their sighting and say that, uh, you know, by by all the ways that you can uh, vouch for your own word, I'm going to do that so that, you know, my conscience is clean. This is what I saw. And you know, that's pretty compelling. Join the conversation at facebook.com slash sasswhat. Find us on Twitter by using the hashtag sasswhat, or you can find me on Twitter at SethBreedsLove. Mark Matsky is on Twitter at Reverend Matsky. Send your letters to sasswhatmail at gmail.com and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. (laughs) 